everyone. Welcome to Type Talks. Today we have Harry from Cognitive Personality Theory. Would you like to tell us a bit Hi. about? Oh, hey. Um, so yeah, absolutely. So a bit about me. Well, that's such a huge question. Um, I guess um, from the perspective of my channel, I am an individual who has, I guess, come up with a, kind of like a fluid model of typology. So it's like unlike maybe some other systems like CPT isn't really about kind of contradicting any systems or saying like this definition of a function is correct and that one is not or anything like that it's much more about kind of like offering a kind of like a typology model that kind of goes over the top of other systems rather than separate from it so it's sort of saying okay yeah you can have this definition that definition it can be perfectly compatible with an MBTI perspective for example but it just kind of exemplifies the kind of pathways in between functions in a way that we naturally move within our types instead of saying that kind of like this type is like this and that type is like that it's more about it's more about kind of how one type moves kind of from one function to another one and how kind of uh, the attitudes of kind of the functions the degree to which we take ownership over function the degree to which we rather observe it and use it more passively kind of fluctuate naturally as well so it's all about um, fluidity on my channel and it's all about kind of like really just emphasizing that aspect and emphasizing the kind of the growth aspect and really emphasizing individuation um, above everything else as well so that's a little bit about me and yeah i guess a channel personality is probably more the cognitive side of things as the um name implies much more about kind of going down into the nitty-gritty detail of the actual cognitive functions and then kind of like really working with the mechanisms of a type and then talking about the kind of the actual output of those cognitive functions just as a kind of secondary aspect that is very awesome indeed very true to young mm -hmm. focusing on individuation yeah. Yeah. and so you also talk about the law of opposites on your channel too and that yeah. you know, when you have something very strong, the opposite is weaker just by the yeah. very principle of it. Exactly. Could you go into that? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So there's like a huge kind of like Taoistic kind of overlap here, you know, the yin and yang um, kind of applied to cognition in many ways. So the law of opposites is essentially, as you say, Joyce, like for as long as there's kind of like one action in one direction, there'll be an equal and opposite reaction in the other direction as well. For as long as we're kind of, we're using this function in this way, it's not like we're not using the other function, it's just we're using it in a different way. In order to act upon one area of cognition, we must simultaneously observe another area. The most intuitive way to grasp that is simply looking at the extroverted thinking, introverted feeling axis. Rather than these two functions being separate with each other, they're actually naturally entangled in a relationship of opposition. And that relationship is actually quite a beautiful one. If you have an extroverted thinking convergence, it's much more about the kind of the action emphasis rather than the logical abidance emphasis. It's about kind of creating logical order out of chaos in many ways. So, you know, it's that kind of that point within the Taoism whereby you are inside chaos and you are creating and bestowing order upon it of your own design. But in order to do that, you have to simultaneously observe your introverted feeling. So that's where the axis has its relationship. An extroverted thinking dominant is simultaneously observing what is true to them, what they want or what they believe they want. And because of the kind of the lack of maybe convergent energies in the introverted feeling, because they're putting so much of that action potential into actually extroverted thinking, yeah, they'll be aware of what they want, but they won't always be aware of why they want it, if that makes sense. So that's when they have the axial kind of rotation, which I always encourage people to develop because then they can learn to compromise and learn to better understand all of those forces driving their extroverted thinking kind of uh, ingenuity. So that's a big part of kind of CPT 
And just, I think, just cognitive functions as a whole, going back to Jung himself, he was a big fan of the opposition kind of nature as well, be it through the shadow or be it, be it just via kind of his work on psychological types too. So it's all about kind of looking where you're acting with a function. And then rather than saying, because I'm using this function, I'm therefore not using another one, it's saying, because I'm using this function, I'm therefore using another function in a different way. And that's the biggest part there. It's not about not using functions and not about having strong functions or weak functions, but it is very much about if you're used to being, let's say, more of an introverted feeling convergent, you might struggle more with the extroverted thinking convergence. It's not because your extroverted thinking is weak, it's just because it's primarily the divergent attitude and therefore much more observational than it is action-oriented. So that's like the best way I can sort of demonstrate just the law of opposition in a kind of a tangible and obvious everyday kind of manner. But you can find it absolutely everywhere within cognition. There's always going to be action. Well, there's always going to be movement. <laughs> it just might be of a different attitude. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much agree. It's very well stated by you. I think you relabeling the inferior function as oppositional is mm -hmm. much more accurate. And so yeah. I think that that is a good contribution that you add. Thank you. So as you were talking, you were mentioning terms like convergence and divergence. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so I was wondering yeah. if you could go into that for people who are new to your theory. Of course, of course. Um, so Convergence and divergence is kind of like terms that I kind of came up with when I no noticed a tendency for the ego to converge in one area over another one. So like this is where CPT might get a little bit kind of like, at least from a kind of a semantic standpoint, um, controversial in that I kind of, I label the auxiliary of kind of like an opposing orientation to what MBTI does. So like the auxiliary would be the MBTI tertiary function in CPT. So and the reason I bring that up is because, say, like it's nine of J, you've got the introverted intuition going on, and then you've got an auxiliary of introverted thinking. It's not to say that introverted thinking is stronger or the second strongest function. It's simply saying it's assisting the function of the same direction. They're both looking in the same direction. They're both helping each other out. But one function is dominant and one function is being assisted by introverted thinking. So what I noticed is a tendency for these two functions, because they're in the dominant orientation, so an introvert's two primary introverted functions, these two functions have a tendency to kind of be within the ego. And because they're within the ego, which is oftentimes the experience of conscious control, you find all of your effort and will kind of converging into these functions. And as such, this convergence of the ego generally results in kind of greater amount of control, greater amount of individual ownership, kind of like the locus of control theory goes on here as well, because you have a greater internal locus of control within these functions in the sense that you feel like you can control the world within this space. So an introvert will feel more comfortable converging into their introverted functions and therefore controlling it. And so the natural, going back to the law of opposition, the natural kind of opposing force here is divergence. Not in a divergence in this form of kind of like divergent thinking or thinking laterally, et cetera. Divergence in the sense that these functions are diverging from the ego, they're diverging from conscious agenda. So therefore this is an area, for example, let's say the extroverted feeling of an INFJ. The extroverted sensing of an INFJ. Again, these two things are operating in a pair, extrovert feelings and auxiliary to extrovert sensing here. These two functions are in a world where you feel uncomfortable controlling it. But because you feel uncomfortable controlling it, it's therefore easier to observe. Because you could think of two different forms of seeing or experiencing. You can know something's there by kind of like, you know, just 
let's say you can't really see and you put your hands around the walls in order to see what's what that's a kind of like an active form of knowing something is there so that would be a convergence or if you can see it everything is illuminated you're not really interacting with it you can simply sit and stare that's more like divergence so the divergent world so the extrovert feeling and extrovert sensing of an INFJ. The opposing orientation of any given cognitive type, so it'll be the introverted functions of an extrovert, for example. There's just a world where you kind of, you sit and you stare at it. And because you're sitting and staring at it and not interacting with it, you're not changing it. It's therefore relatively static. Because it's relatively static, it diverges away from the ego. You feel like you can't control it. And that means you feel like, well, if I can't control it, therefore I must abide by it. These are just rules. This is how life is. This is the static portion of reality. I can't do anything with this for as long as it's in this attitude, but I can see it as a result. So it's just action and observation and that kind of perfect and um, beautiful relationship between those two extremes. And so the biggest part of potential misunderstanding here is that attitudes are fluid. Again, this is a fluid model. So this is really, really important just um, to get to grips with for as long as you're interested in kind of exploring the attitudes of cognitive functions. Just because a function is primarily convergent, it doesn't mean it can't be divergent. Just because a function is primarily divergent doesn't mean it can't be convergent. And INFJ can still push against social parameters. They can still be cheeky if they want to be. They're not always going to be kind of nice, polite individuals, especially with people they're more comfortable around. Simultaneously, an introverted thinking dominant, say an INTP, they're not always coming up with their own theories. They can observe other people's theories as well. They can render something static and say, well, I found this to be true, and therefore I will render it divergent. I'm just going to look at it now because I don't have to reinvent this logic because my agenda is defining what the truth is. Anyway, and in order to abide by truth, you need to render it divergent as well. So I hope that's a little kind of breakdown of what the attitudes are, but also a demonstration of how these attitudes by necessity have to be a bit fluid. <laughs> Yeah. So you can go between attitudes. You can be fluid between attitudes. Yeah. You do have the predispositions that inform yes. you, but exactly. you also have the fluidity between different ways of operating just because human human dynamics are fluid. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Makes well sense. Said. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Got it. So your theory brings something very unique. You tend to focus on the convergent attitude between mm -hmm. the for, for the INFJ, the NI and the TI, because that's mm -hmm. within the realm of control. And so you yeah. actually connotate the type that's INFJ as NI, TI for that very reason. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very different take on type. And so it really places an emphasis on actually the intellectual nature of mm. the INFJ personality. Yeah. Yeah, because not only do they perceive in a plethoric, broad, expansive kaleidoscope way with their introverted mm. intuition. They also mm. have that TI, that introverted thinking that is mm. organizing the experience. You call it the Kodak and the lens. Yes. So you call yeah. the perceiving functions the the lens and you call mm -hmm. the judging functions the Kodak. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's a very wonderful take on the way to see the functions because a lot of the descriptions of the INFJ are actually very FE heavy. A lot of descriptions yeah. of all of the types are very secondary function heavy. So yeah, with definitely. ISFP, they have really strong SE in all of those yeah. descriptions, yeah. which just doesn't play out in reality in most cases. Exactly. And so yeah. with a lot of INFJs, they're actually heavily intellectual due to the yeah. NITI pairing with the, the TI being very active in how it's 
evaluating principles of mm -hmm. logic and the mm -hmm. underlying logic of things. Yeah, exactly. And a, a really interesting phenomenon when it comes to um, IX, FJ types is because of the kind of this authoritative strength of extroverted feeling, not everyone of this type is going to feel comfortable sharing the product of their introverted thinking. And so like, you know, when it comes to typology and assessing a person, you kind of, you go with the functions that are most overtly demonstrable. And in that sense, you see, okay, yeah, I'm seeing lots of extroverted feeling, you know, it's okay, fair enough, it's pretty passive. It's like, you know, not very active necessarily, but it's obviously there. But you also see a lot of the time, and you even get this of introverted feeling, auxiliaries like INTJs as well, a kind of a withholding of the product of the introverted thinking. So it's like from a cognitive perspective, it's going on all the time. Like in order to actually observe effectively all of that extrovert feeling, there's a huge overwhelming emphasis and compulsive drive for any IXFJ to go heavy into TI and order to say, well, what's exactly going on here? How do I consciously kind of understand these parameters? Because I need to make sense of this. Like as an introverted cognition, my way of kind of like controlling things is generally by accounting for things, you know, knowledge, etc. It's through anticipation that I can say, okay, this is how I understand the world. This is how I know I'm not going to be destroyed by the world, for example. So there's always going to be introvert thinking going on. Even if you're not seeing a lot of it, there's always going to be NI going on with an ISFP, even if you're not seeing a lot of it in a classic sense, because generally the authority function can actually, to some extent, mediate the external, the extroverted expression of the auxiliary. And a good demonstration of this is extroverted feeling, introverted thinking. So again, getting an axis. Now, in order to demonstrate introverted thinking, you know, doing what me and Joyce are doing right now. You have to simultaneously observe introverted thinking and that requires extroverted feeling convergence so in order for an infj to actually relay the product of the introverted thinking to another person especially with a sense of kind of like confidence that is necessary in the first place in order to be taken seriously you have to be quite confident within the realm of extroverted feeling convergence so you have to actually develop your type in the first place in order to express the product of your auxiliary function so you know an ISFJ, for example, like they're always going to be going into the TI. They're always going to have their own theories and opinions and scrutinizations and analyses and reflections, but they're not always going to tell you that unless they're comfortable around you or unless they've done enough type development in order to activate their extrovert feeling authority function in a more demonstrable kind of way. As you say, Joyce, not every ISFP is going to have that extrovert sensing demonstration of sort of, yeah, let's get into this, let's do this, let's push against the boundaries, let's maximize myself in reality let's kind of manifest myself in external reality but you will still see an observation of it so it's generally what i find is a lot of definitions of functions they're kind of contingent upon a function's overt demonstration but a function's overt demonstration is usually a convergent attitude rather than a divergent one if that makes sense so we see convergent functions and then we say, oh, okay, a function's being used, therefore it's a convergent function. But we don't necessarily see divergent functions outside of their natural suppression of, <laughs> let's say, our auxiliary function. Because an extrovert feeling kind of, in an extrovert feeling authoritative INFJ, which is going to be quite a lot of them, are going to find a TI expression pushed down because they just don't want to push against social boundaries. But in order to communicate the product of your TI, your own kind of opinions, which might differ to other people, you have to push against social boundaries to some extent. And that's why kind of like the whole tertiary development thing of MBTI is for all intents and purposes true, because in order to see that function being used, it has to be rendered a little bit more divergent in order to allow for the authority function 
the auxiliary of MBTI um, to actually push against the order it usually abides by. Yeah, that's a good point, Harry. So it's very true how the INFJ type, they'll have that introverted thinking, but you may not see it as much because the authority function, which is the second function, so the FE is putting on a socially cautious face. And so they're not going to share with you all of these things that they're theorizing about because they want to be socially appropriate and socially acceptable. (laughs) And so that can cause their more convergent functions to be more hidden. And so you may not always see it, even though it's there. And so for instance, this can be applied to the ISFP type that we were talking about earlier. So ISFPs relate a lot to their FI and NI because it is in their world when they're in their abstract inner world, they're reevaluating their identity or reformulating how they see their self-concept. And so what will happen with that is they see themselves as NF, like a lot of ISFPs see themselves as NF because of their inner world. Whereas people who are seeing them may, might see their authority function, which is their second function. So extroverted sensing, it's gonna be more obvious to other people that they use extroverted sensing than to the actual ISFP in a lot of cases. And so that's a wonderful way of putting it because it is true that the authority function is demonstrable and so that people can yeah. kind of see its role, even if it plays more of a passive role than an active role. Yeah. Exactly. And exactly. so when Harry's saying auxiliary, he's referring to like for the INFJ, the TI. Because so, yeah. the system mm-hmm. is the NI is the dominant function and the TI is the auxiliary function of the INFJ. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, I just want to kind of expand upon that a little bit Um, because it's like, it's again, like um, it's totally understandable. Like if the person like comes into CPT new and kind of misinterprets like what I mean by auxiliary, because I think the term auxiliary within typology of cognitive functions has become kind of synonymous with a degree of strength that generally means secondary rather than auxiliary, but just like to hone in to like the, the definition of auxiliary simply to perform an assistive role. So it's not by saying kind of, TI is auxiliary within an, an INFJ. I'm not even necessarily saying it's playing an assistive role or a secondary role, you know, in terms of like a one, two, three, four, top-down preference order of cognitive functions, but it is performing an assistive role to NI. So I'll kind of, I'll generally refer to two different auxiliaries. So like, and interestingly, there's, I think only, Jung only said this once, and I think it was within his work on alchemy, but he posited kind of like the inferior function as he says, has an auxiliary as well. So there's two kind of like, there's a dominant axis and then there's an auxiliary axis. So there's two auxiliaries within CPT. Generally, when I say auxiliary, I refer to a primary auxiliary, which just means it's the auxiliary at the same orientation as the dominant. But there's also the authority function is actually auxiliary to the oppositional function. So it's another bit of like CPT nomenclature, the dominant axis and the auxiliary axis, but just wanna kind of get it across that I don't mean kind of second function by auxiliary. I simply mean a function which is performing a predominantly assistive role to the dominant function. So it doesn't mean second strongest function necessarily, because yeah, the authority function is technically a really strong and compulsive function. Introverted thinking is a little bit more kind of like fluid, dynamic, and less kind of compulsively, you know, exacting. But it is performing an assistive role to an NI agenda, whereas you know within an ISGP, it's NI which is performing an auxiliary role to TI agenda. And that's like the the lens codec pairing of CPT operates upon the dominant axis and the 
auxiliary access. So I just wanted to kind of throw that in there just in case people get kind of confused or muddled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a brilliant explanation, Harry. And you talk about how it's not particularly about strength because mm -hmm. the authority function, so the FE function in the INFJ is technically sometimes a little stronger for some people yeah. than for other people. Yeah. Um, but you're talking about in terms of how they work with each other. The mm -hmm. NI of the INFJ yeah. typically works with the TI of the INFJ. And so that partnership, because of that, that is the auxiliary role. And yeah, because the, the lens always has to work with the code act. And so exactly. work together yeah, exactly. to create an action. 100%. And so speaking of INFJs, Harry, I'm wondering mm -hmm. about your experience as an INFJ. What are some of the things that really rung true with you about knowing about your type? What are some things that were your aha moments? Like, that was so me. I'll tell you what, like, um, during teenage years, I went so hard into uh, the whole rational, intellectual kind of stereotype because, you know, we're often very extreme as individuals when we're taking charge of our identity for the first time in adolescence. Um, that I kind of like, from a young age, I was kind of pushing against kind of FE to some extent. I was kind of like, on some kind of subconscious level, I was aware of this kind of like this thing, this magnet in my mind telling me to be polite, telling me to kind of like be respectful, not to push too hard against social boundaries, etc. kind of navigate, never kind of assert myself too strongly in a social domain. When there's someone needing cheering up, be more kind of like supportive, you know, head on shoulder kind of role rather than kind of more overtly you know, taking charge of their emotions. So I think I was aware of something like that going on early age, but to tell you the truth, like when I was first interested in like personality typing, you know, taking like the what kind of pony are you tests and stuff online. Um, and I guess I did like something MBTI related back then as well. Like I got like INTJ and it's like, you know, until I start taking typology seriously from the age of like 24 or something, which would have been like eight years after taking that test. I was like, oh, okay, that doesn't seem entirely accurate. Now I'm talking about cognitive functions. But I think I went for the biggest part of like teenage years and young adulthood being very kind of like logic, logic, logic. And then just maybe being like, maybe on some level, being a little bit blind to how much I needed to communicate that in a kind of a respectful way. I just thought me communicating it in this kind of FE way was just me being logical. You know, it's just, it was all logic. It was just a thinking function. There was nothing else. <laughs> um, but I think once I kind of like I started delving into cognitive functions more from the age of 23, I started saying, realizing this force outside of my ego, which is telling me to behave a certain way around people, which is sort of like asserting these parameters. I realized, well, first of all, other people don't seem to be quite as socially inhibited in those kind of ways, or as naturally polite and courteous in those kind of ways. And then, you know, I dug further into it. I was realizing, okay, well, I'm obviously using NI. I'm obviously using TI. I don't know if TE at all, what a surprise. And that means FE must be there, but how? Because I read FE descriptions and it was much more convergent FE. It was much more like, these people are like really kind of huggy teddy bears kind of going around cheering people up and stuff. They're caretakers. They're really looking after people's feelings all the time. I don't really do that. I kind of observe people's feelings. I'm very polite and courteous, but I don't really see it as my responsibility a lot of the time, especially outside of the moment, how could I possibly be an FE user? How does it all into other feelings? So I was like, wait a minute, N-I-T-I, uh, F-I. <laughs> so I was like, this doesn't seem right. But I think I just kept digging into it. And then I realized past the initial descriptions, going back into the words of Carl Jung as well, no, no, extrovert feeling can be there without it being always actively kind of pushing onto people. And then I realized, 
oh, so it is there. It is within my cognition. So I think <laughs> tossing and turning over the course of a year and finally accepting that there was a part of me which is incredibly like in the moment, empathetic, which did kind of like absorb emotions more than maybe I was willing to admit as well. And I realized all of those things about myself. And then I realized, I think through discovering that was actually a cognitive function for the primary kind of gateway within me, that it didn't actually seem to be that bad after all. I think I kind of associated with extrovert feelings kind of like being illogical or something, you know, doing my rudimentary understanding and sort of like type, etc. I thought it was something that would kind of like contradict my logical agenda, would kind of like make me weak in some level or something like that. But then I realized, oh no, this is actually working really beautifully and harmoniously with my introverted thinking. So I think once I realized it was my friend and not my foe, I realized, okay, actually, yeah, maybe I'm an INFJ. And so I had to get past that kind of ego barrier, I suppose. But then I realized, oh, but actually this function is very well developed within me. What if I could start kind of cheering people up more? What if I could be kind of like more socially kind of um, effervescent? And, you know, what if I could kind of like um, do things that I just thought was outside of my stereotype before? So I'm actually someone who has a background, I suppose, as being like a thinker or someone who kind of like thought over and maybe it's a british stiff upper lip thing <laughs> as well but you know i think i do come from a background sort of like seeing kind of like emotion touchy feely kind of stuff is like a little bit like socially unacceptable which is kind of ironic um so i think discovering my kind of type um all those years ago actually began a very important step in my self-growth realizing that there was this part within me, you know, as Jung would say, like, what was what you resist persists. I think my shadow in many ways was my extroverted feeling. And so it was like recognizing that I was like, oh, this is actually a part of me, but it doesn't actually have to be something that's inhibiting. It can be really freeing. It can allow me to kind of like, to get my word out. It can mean my logic is not just this little dragon treasure board or whatever. It's actually something I can share with other people. And then maybe people can share things with me and then maybe I can grow more and then maybe they can grow more. And so I think activating my extroverted feeling after recognizing it is actually there was a really, really big part of my own kind of personal like character growth. And I think like discovering extrovert feeling and accepting that it was there in the first place has enabled me to be a better person, <laughs> which is cool. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that, Harry. You provided a lot of insight into your life and it's nice to get to know you on a personal level too, and not just the hmm. professional level that we get to exactly. see a little bit of Harry, Harry. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> like, um, it's that, it's a sad restriction of the channel, I think, in many ways, because like my NI always wants to stay on brand. It's like, no, this has to be on brand. It has to be kind of like coherent with kind of like the role I'm seeking to do. I don't want to create too many dissonances. It's generally bad, as I'm sure you know, Joe, it's like a YouTube advice to kind of like to try and be too many parts of yourself all at once. A channel should generally niche down, especially if it's smallish kind of size like mine in that sense. Um, so I think it is actually freeing to be able to kind of just be a bit more myself <laughs> on camera outside of the channel space. So, yeah, I appreciate yeah. it. You can just come on my channel to be yourself then. And then exactly, be yeah. for people who want to get to know you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. Yeah, I can relate to that as a fellow content creator and an INFJ yeah. myself. When yeah. I make videos, they're actually relatively impersonal because I'm trying yeah. to distill the theory. I'm trying to get yeah. the 
theoreticals you know in a way that's packaged well and I'm focused more on the intellectual aspect of dissemination and then I realized that I haven't shared anything about myself and I'm like oh yeah I guess the other members have nothing to bond with I guess I have to figure out a way to compensate for this so this is going a little bit too in the NITI and then needing to go back Mm -hmm. into the FE it's like all right you haven't been connecting with them let's share something personal so that we can create that relationship between us And so Mm -hmm. it it is quite interesting how our authority function, so the FE and INFJs, is a point that can give them the most bang for their buck. So Mm -hmm. it may not be as natural to go to, but it actually has a lot of growth potential within your personality. And so it's wonderful to see that demonstrated in your life, Harry. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in the spirit of getting you to share more about yourself, I'm wondering about what type has really done for your life mm. as Harry. I think while like type can often be like a double-edged sword, especially if we get it wrong, um, in many ways, the people who benefit the most from knowing the type are the people who don't necessarily want to see certain parts of themselves because they falsely identified those parts as being on some level shameful or weak and instead of but the thing is like once you identify with a part of yourself which you're trying to suppress all the time and again we're going into the young each other um you actually realize you have more power over it and it's actually part of you and it can actually move with you rather than restrict you and i think so a lot of the people who like benefit the most from knowing the type are actually oftentimes going to be like the many esfps who might be on the infj subreddit for example mistyping as infjs all the time because they're fundamentally seeing parts of themselves a certain way and okay well on occasion it'll just be simply not understanding what the nuances of cognitive function theory but on many times it'll be because they don't necessarily want to see certain parts of themselves because they have been led to believe for one reason or another that those parts are kind of shameful or things that is wrong with them on some level so it's like going back to myself like knowing my type enabled me to see parts of myself that i was originally on some level ashamed of that i originally on some level be it due to external programming, internal programming, or a combination of the two. We're seeing as something that was inhibiting me, something that couldn't possibly be me because it was so inhibiting. It must be some kind of like thing that must be discarded. But in reality, it was something I was pushing down, this extroverted feeling, this extroverted sensing, these things were, were things I was trying to escape on some level and deny the existence of. And then suddenly seeing that they do exist. They're a big part of my cognition. They're actually not only a big part of my cognition, they're actually informing and driving forward the parts of myself I did relate to in the first place. So it's like, okay, this is actually one big, beautiful organism. And then you step one, you take one step further, and then you say, well, since it's a part of me, it's something I can also control. It's also something I can harmonize with and integrate further into myself to be even more of myself. And so I think the biggest benefit of personality typing in general is much more than kind of like knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are much more than kind of like having a kind of like a placeholder personal identity it's, it's actually kind of like as a cognitive map rather than cognitive stack as i like to call it towards your own integration because you're seeing these things that are part of you that maybe you didn't actually want to see necessarily but even better than that you're actually seeing how all the other parts of you that you didn't necessarily want to see so like what every time i call shadow functions for example and i call dip functions in cpt you can access them too so the greatest thing about type is actually realizing the means by which you can integrate and bring in together all of these parts that make you who you are. 
So rather than typing a restrictive set of boundaries saying these are your functions and then these aren't your functions, you should just stay within these two functions and then everything else is kind of evil and demonic, et cetera. It's much more about sort of saying, I am a human being. These are my natural kind of inclinations and predispositions. These things which I didn't necessarily want to see in the first place are actually there and a big part of me and actually a part of myself that I'm proud of and a part of myself I can integrate and a part of myself which have actually been my friends all along and I thought were my enemy but they're actually my friend and that's interesting and then you can go even further than that and say well how do I expand my type even more so I see type although it's fantastic to understand like how you're operating as much more than just an operating system and actually a means of kind of individuating um, ourselves if that makes sense it's a means of growth and that's the way I like to sell type the most. So again, just backtracking a bit, the people who benefit from most from type are generally the people who had kind of blind sides on some level, who saw kind of amplified certain parts of the cognition, which they may have developed, and then kind of like suppressed and pushed down other parts of the cognition. So which is why like you get a lot of individuals, and I just have to do this, I have to get a little bit of a soapbox here. You get a kind of like a negative stigma associated with kind of like two sensor types within the community, for example, and the result of that or something parallel to that is people overwhelmingly across the board, maybe because they oftentimes score highly on openness in the big five, within this community, they think they're all intuitive types because they're thinking big picture, because they are using an intuitive functions, but then they're not necessarily seeing their functions, which they're trying to push down. So there might be SI dominance, there might be SE dominance, et cetera, and they're not necessarily seeing how these functions have always been their friend. These functions that they're denying, they're saying, I can't be a sensor, I can't be these things, have actually enabled them to be the intuitive that they are, if that makes sense. They're passing through their SI in order to enter the NI. They're not, it's not about like having low NI or weak NI. And I think it's because of those kind of stereotypes that people mistype as intuitives all the time in the first place. But you know, there's so many people who think they're INFJs and for good reason, maybe they are using a lot of NITI, but you need to also kind of recognize the gateways that made that possible and recognize the parts of yourself which are really beautiful, that are really strong, and that you shouldn't be ashamed of those parts of yourself. And that's generally what I try and sell to people when I end up inevitably mistyping someone who thought they were an intuitive as a sensor. Like, this is fantastic. This is a great part of you. Like, don't deny that. Like, look how it's, look how it's allowed you to grow already and imagine how much further you can grow with it once you recognize it's there. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting, the point you brought up about mistyping, and it's very true. Mm -hmm. INFJ is the most mistyped type in the whole mm -hmm. type nation. The other most mistyped types are also the INTJ, the, yeah. and yeah. with just within the, the introverts, that like people tend to mistype as introvert and intuitive very yeah. often. Like there's a bias towards typing out as both of those kind of places too. Yeah. And yeah. partially some of the reasons why on top of Harry's wonderful reasons is I believe trauma can cause people to mistype too. So mm -hmm. people are more likely to skew towards thinking they're an introvert because of trauma, because yeah. they tend to go like, Oh, I'm reclusive. You know, the outer world is scary because I'm more comfortable in my inner world because there has been traumatic stimulation with the external yeah. world. And people are more likely to type into the intuitive category because Trauma tends to make people identify more with being deep because they're like, well, this trauma is making me introspect and I have to look at the bigger questions of life to define why I am traumatized and make sense of it all, basically. Trauma creates a sense of lostness that creates you wanting to figure out why that exists. And so intuitive immediately. And then it also creates a skew towards the 
J dichotomy because mm. people are like, I need to control the world around me because it's unpredictable and traumatized people tend to want to make sure that they can predict what happens so they don't get re-traumatized again. And right. so basically a lot of the community mistypes within the realm of INFJ and INTJ, mm. no matter what type they are. <laughs> they could be any type. <laughs> yeah, they could be any type. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mistype. Yeah. So that's a wonderful point, Harry, and it's not talked mm. about a lot that it's not just intuitives that are open on no. the big five. Yeah. Anyone yeah. can be open in the big five. Yeah. There are certain things that could skew you a little bit towards more openness mm. that you wouldn't expect. And so I'm, I'm you went on your soapbox and then I'm going on my soapbox. This is fantastic. Yeah, I'm totally 100% in accord with you right now. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> mm. For instance, a common type that's going to score extremely high on openness that is not an intuitive type or commonly defined as an intuitive type is the ESFP and the ESTP types because they lead with an extroverted perceiving function that is very experiential, open to experience yeah. and open to learning yeah. and consuming. And so they oftentimes score almost like one of the highest results on openness. Yeah. And yeah. Then they're like, oh, I must be an intuitive. And then it's like, nope, nope, that's, that's not. Well, that's not what it means. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and so there's also a mix up of definitions as well that, that mm. happens within the space. Like people are like, oh, yes, I'm intuitive because I'm deep. And it's mm. kind of like, well, everyone is deep in their own way. So if you define it that way, okay. we're all intuitive. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah. intuitive is more uh, perceiving things in a broad, plethoric, kaleidoscopic way and mm -hmm. not in a specific detailed lens or microsc microscopic lens. Exactly, 100%. <laughs> it, that's totally it. And it's like what I like to say here as well is um, any type can achieve a certain cognitive product. And you can think of a cognitive product like, you know, me making CBT or something like that. Like, the, you're not determined and your type doesn't determine the, the potential products of your cognition. It simply determines the means by which you achieve that product in the first place. So a product could be labeled as being intellectual. There you go. There's a product of cognition. Now, any type can be intellectual, but, you know, to go into those kind of like the hard definition of what it truly means to have a lens of a certain persuasion. If you have an intuitive lens, it is more kind of broad and kaleidoscopic, but also vague. Because it's so broad, it's got typically it's the same kind of magnitude. So you're operating with the same amount of atoms, if you will, but it's more like a gas kind of state. Whereas, you know, if you go into like sensing, it's more of like a solid matter. So the matter is still the same. It's still just as deep. There's still just as much information, but a sensor condenses that information into something really high quality and fidelity with a lot of nuance and integrity. And the intuitive kind of like sees the wood for the trees, but not necessarily the bark, <laughs> if that makes sense. So. Now, both of these types can become and be very intellectual and create very interesting cognitive product, which could be, you know, misidentified as being the domain of the intuitive only. But if you look at kind of an intuitive, like, you know, you're seeing someone doing these really broad kind of like bush strokes all the time. And this is, and I guess keep doing the bush strokes until finally they've covered all of the area and everything's complete and it's an individual theory. Whereas like a more like introvert sensing dominance, even if they're dipping into NI quite a lot, it's more like, let's take this building block here and let's just keep adding it together and adding it together and create this really wonderful structure. So both of these types could create a structure, but the NI kind of lens is doing it in a kind of like a broad sweeping kind of manner. And it might be missing details every now and again, but it'll get it eventually. <laughs> and then the kind of like 
BSI dominant maybe will be kind of building things from the ground up one step at a time and it'll arrive at the same structure. They'll both create the same product at the end of the day. They're just doing so in a very different manner, if that makes sense. So that's what I like to kind of demonstrate. Like you can be all of those things. It's not saying you can't be these things. It just means your cognitive mechanisms, primarily speaking, are just different and they'll do it in their own way. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That is quite a splendid way of putting it. From your demonstration, Harry, you can see that with the INFJ or the NITI in your system is more comfortable with the broad sweeping, wide sweeping. Yeah generalization first and exactly. so they're more comfortable with inferences off the bat almost or yeah, the guessing yes. part off the bat mm -hmm. whereas with the isfj with the siti mm -hmm. anyone can get at the same product but they're gonna take more incremental steps because they they mm -hmm. are not trusting their inferences as much and they kind of need time to build it over time because they they need a concrete hook for it to fully exactly. yeah. got it exactly. yeah and so something really poignant that you talk about that I want to go deeper into is how the product is not the same as the thing mm -hmm. itself. Yeah. So a laundry machine is not is not clean clothing. It is the process in which the clothing gets washed. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. I like that. And so phenomenology is separate from the byproducts of that phenomenology. And, yeah. and so the products of cognition are not the same as cognition itself. And so that's why you can't type purely based off of behavior, because any type can do any behavior, but it, it's a more about your cognitive approach to that behavior and mm -hmm. how you go about and why you go about doing that behavior that makes it specifically your type, which is why type can be so fluid, expansive and open. And there is no box because you're not boxed into a certain behavior because any type can do any behavior. It is simply describing how you reach that behavior. Mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. it gives you a way of understanding it. And it just reinforces the idea that type is fluid. It's yeah. not something that is defined by behavior because that's more of the surface appearance of it. Mm -hmm. Like there are trends in terms of behaviors, but it's not, oh, yeah. it's not a one-to-one -one because you'll see outliers. You'll see types that have an interesting cognition of approaching a certain task that people wouldn't assume that they would do that task. And so it really allows room for people to ponder about their cognition. It's like, if you truly want to figure out your type, you really have to get to the cognitive core of it. And you have to ask yourself, like, what is what are the processes going on that lead you to that action rather than just surface analyzing the action? But I guess people are very addicted to typing themselves based off of actions because it's easier. So they're like, oh, this, this action, this type. And so people are looking like for that quick fix, that quick solution because of the instant gratification culture, but also because it's a part exactly. of the human psyche to want. Yeah, um, exactly. Part of this resistance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it is tricky as well because, um, I mean, there's no doubt certain like correlations do exist as you, you know, insinuated, like any kind of process can sort of like result in the same product. But like maybe if we're going back to an SI dominant, maybe they don't have quite the same drive as another SI dominant to create an intellectual product, for example, because it is going to take time because they want to get it right. Whereas like, you know, an NI dominant might be more probable, if, there might be higher probability of certain functions producing a certain kind of output because it's just 
easier to create something and the person's more willing to accept errors, if that makes sense. So generally emphasize the mechanisms much more than the output and never rule out output on the basis of mechanisms. But, you know, you know me and Joyce are both typologists, so, you know, we actually give people that type. And what we have to do is essentially try and get zoom in as close as possible to the mechanism of cognition. And there's various different ways to do that. Um, but sometimes there's, at least on my end, there's a probabilistic element. So if a person's consistently doing all of these things, it means, okay, maybe the person's finding it easier to do those broad brush strokes I was doing before. And maybe they're kind of like more happy to, you know, go over certain like errors, you know, certain kind of like minor points. And maybe, you know, they're happier to kind of like to make those errors, sorry, in the first place. And maybe that implies an NI scope as concerns kind of internal product of cognition. Um, so there is still like a level of kind of like guessing on my end as a typologist on the basis of kind of like, well, is a person doing this over and over again and they find it really, really easy? But then like the better I get, um, the better typologists get, the closer we get to the mechanisms of cognition and the harder it gets for us as well to type people because again, we don't want to make errors. <laughs> that is very true. Mm. And it is quite interesting because we do have to guess into cognition so it's not going to always be 100% surefire because yeah. you will only have behaviors to guess into because people will be telling you about their behaviors and they'll be explaining why they do those behaviors but you also have to like trust that they're explaining the why correctly yeah so you're always guessing you're inferring but behind the behavior as a typologist which runs you into a lot of potential potential things to overcome because now you have to figure out, all right, so they're giving me behavior and now I have to infer the cognitive mechanism behind this behavior. And yeah. so becoming a good typologist is becoming great at inferring behind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like a lot of the, like, I'm sure like you say similar things like this choice in your own kind of work, but it's like a, a key kind of phrase maybe as a typologist is based upon the information you have provided me. There you go. So it's sort of like it's almost like a disclaimer on some level because as much as the typologists will want to really zoom in even behind your words to the intentions of your words, really want to get into the nuances that they can detect from your actual cognitive processes, sometimes you have to take your word for it. And so that means there is a kind of a cooperation between the kind of the client and the typologist in making sure the words are at least somewhat kind of um, coherent with the underlying cognition that the person knows themselves at least to an extent. And, you know, if they don't and they report that from the beginning, then it just becomes a slightly different kind of typology service. But if the person says confidently they do know themselves, then, you know, there is a level of kind of benefit of the doubt <laughs> involved. There definitely is, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So with every typing session, it actually helps us hone our understanding of type. So people are helping us when they sign up for sessions. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's real <laughs> research in its own right. Exactly. And so you did that classic INFJ thing of, I tried to ask you about your life and then you just started going to this broad, big picture kaleidoscope. Yeah. You've seen one. You're like, yeah. so the understanding of life is this. And I'm like, thank you, Harry. I was asking about you as an individual. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can relate to that as a person myself who evades mm -hmm. questions about myself unknowingly and just goes- Unknowingly, oh, exactly. Yeah, it's just a default. <laughs> Reflex, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I thought I'd ask you a more direct question. Absolutely. So, yeah. 
before creating your YouTube channel, Cognitive Personality Theory, you were actually a guitarist or you like to play yeah. with the strings. And so could you tell me a little bit about your love of music? Oh, yeah. You know, the thing is, like, I didn't at the age of like, what was it like? I don't know. Let's say like between ages of 10 and 16, I think I was convinced that I had no real musical ability. I didn't think I was musically like, um, you know, handicapped or anything. I just thought, yeah, it's not really seem, something I seem to gravitate towards. I didn't really listen to much music either. Um, and then I kind of like by a fluke, maybe. I had a friend who was kind of uh, getting into playing guitar and he wanted someone to play with. So I was like, so he actually lent me money to buy a bass, you know. So I started playing bass guitar and then I realized, wait a minute, why is this so intuitive? Like, this feels very natural. This is strange. And, you know, it just so happens that I come from a kind of musical lineage on my dad's side. So maybe there's some kind of like genetic memory or something going on there. So I ended up like picking up the instrument fairly naturally and intuitively. And then it was, I also found it was very cathartic. I think in many ways I was back when I was 16 or something, very TI-ish, very kind of detaching from my FI, didn't really want to go into it too much. So I think like music on some levels kind of activated that continuum, the gateway into my introverted feeling on some level. And so I began to like know myself via exploring music in many ways. And not only know myself, but also via music over the ensuing years, I could express myself emotionally but in a way that kind of like I didn't feel permitted to maybe necessarily in my immediate culture. So like, you know, I could tell people when I was happy and sad and angry and stuff, but I couldn't tell people what was deeper and maybe what words can't necessarily express as easily anyway. So it's like being able to authentically express the kind of the deeper parts of me that I kind of maybe suppressed on some level or felt maybe kind of like ashamed of, the more like sensitive Harry. Um, I was able to kind of like feel more in tune with myself and more kind of integrated with myself. So actually like, I know I was talking about using type code and stuff to integrate, which I have done, but like the first step in my integration process before I even knew about cognitive functions anyway, was actually just by like connecting with music, expressing parts of myself with music and being accepted by people. I created like a music channel to transmit my music, um, which was like kind of soundtrack covers mainly of like video game music because I kind of grew up on that stuff and it's very nostalgic for me and loads of people were connecting with it they really enjoyed it some people like you know had their wedding to some of my music in other countries i was like whoa this is cool so it's like and i think like expressing my music was kind of expressing my soul you know so and i feel like that enabled me to kind of feel very connected and very kind of like allowed i felt i was allowed to be myself and i felt like how to say it it's a strange feeling, but you know, I think it's a part of being human within society. Parts of ourselves we end up pushing down or becoming ashamed of or feeling like this is just for me. I'm not allowed to share with other people. So I think like music allowed me to share more of my, myself that I was previously comfortable with and that created kind of, like a more intimate relationship with humanity as a whole and realizing that I didn't need to be as private as I previously was either. So I know I went back to the broad level, but it really was kind of like a big part of my own integration process. Like opening up, becoming less private and more willing to just kind of be and show people who I am via a kind of language that was more intuitive for me than words, if that makes sense. So that's a big part of like why I still do music today. It's like an access to the core of who I am in a way of like communicating parts of myself and beliefs within myself, not just kind of like 
my personality, but also who I am and what I believe through another language in many ways. And that's, I think that's what's beautiful about music. It is a means of kind of bypassing all of this kind of weird, like a stigmatized kind of like semantic um, spider web. <laughs> and instead just sort of like going as much as we can into like the, the heart of the subject matter and saying, without any kind of like superfluous associations of one word meaning something different to another person, for example, or different phonetic kind of connotations of language, just saying this is in as pure form as I can possibly get it within the confines of kind of like westernized compositional and harmonic language, a statement. And the person can receive that statement however they want, but they'll receive it on a kind of like a way that bypasses a lot of cerebral processes and kind of heuristics and they'll receive that statement via this this different language into what I'd like to think of a deeper core, a deeper part of themselves. So I actually believe music itself can be very freeing and I can actually penetrate the cores of people and free them and allow them to be themselves in a way that words oftentimes cannot. Beautifully put, beautifully put. So the soul of Harry, like <laughs> music helps you get closer to the core and the soul essence of Harry. So I'm wondering, what is the soul of Harry? And what songs do you connect most with limbically as you play them? Wow. Um, I think when it comes to my own musical practice, because I think as a listener, I have a different personality to a performer and composer. But in the latter category, the musical style is much more kind of like um, slow, down tempo, sometimes bordering on melancholic, but also kind of like rising into kind of like satisfying kind of climaxes and resolutions. I think an underlying narrative the music I often gravitate towards as a composer is one to the effect of kind of darkness and light and maybe overcoming of the former and kind of embracing the latter. It's often about kind of employing kind of levels of dissonances and minor tones in order to kind of demonstrate the challenges and struggles that we are ubiquitously kind of faced with on an everyday basis. And also by doing that and establishing that kind of dissonance, demonstrating the ways by that distance, the ways by which that dissonance can also be overcome into something more beautiful and harmonious, but also at the same time, demonstrating with this kind of clashing musical language in some level that, you know, it's a cliche, but the whole, the age old kind of like saying of there is no light without darkness or, you know, the age old saying of kind of like, again, going back into the towers and the balance of order and chaos yin and yang. And I think that's a huge part of my musical language, but I think it's in a much more slow and peaceful and harmonic kind of like manner rather than the more phonetic manner that as a musical listener, like I am drawn towards, I am drawn towards like a lot of up tempo and like heavy stuff. But when it comes to my own kind of practice and like communicating the soul of Harry, as you put it, it's much more kind of soft, soothing, but also kind of like establishing levels of darkness in order to kind of like to fully encapsulate a the entirety of a human narrative I suppose rather than just a portion of it that we prefer mm -hmm. yeah yeah the all of it it really well displays the introverted intuition predisposition to see life holistically so it's not just portions of reality but the holistic version of reality the unified reality behind things and so it's quite interesting how your music displays the law of opposites 
So the light and the darkness, they're opposites, doing a little dance together. And you're able to encapsulate that through your song in the way that you you show it. Um, someone I hypothesize to be an INFJ, a musical artist, which I'll link below is, um, I'm totally going to mispronounce his name, Estes Tonis. He has a street performance song. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah cool. the song of the golden dragon. Yeah. <laughs> I know for that. Cool. Yeah, and nice. something very INFJ about his music and about Harry's music is it's trying to communicate the full story and not just mm -hmm. portions of it. NI gets this euphoria from communicating the, the full narrative. And so it is very broad, expansive, because there's a certain ability to go intricately into that nuance. And so you see, like, Harry really likes to go back to that concept of order and chaos um, from the Taoist beliefs. And what he does is he goes deeper into that in a more holistic way. Mm -hmm. And that produces great music and a great life ideology and philosophy and, and lens through which you see the world. Mm -hmm. And so there is that beauty and originality that comes from that ability to see life holistically. And mm -hmm. so you mentioned you composed songs. So you actually make songs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that's like more behind the scenes. I'm getting back to the privacy thing maybe oh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Went, no no not at all like um it's just amusing to note that to myself i think um i have actually released some original music on guitar on my music channel which kind of demonstrates that but i think like um i'm working on like piano kind of album at the moment which i'm intending to kind of like hopefully release this time next year so i'm taking my time with it but it's like um that's where i find it easier to compose most holistically on the keyboard um on the keys um, when it comes to guitar it's like it's more about kind of shapes and what you're used to as well and it kind of like you have to really kind of like think outside the box in order to kind of like create like a a multi-key kind of composition with all the harmonic language that you want to get across um whereas but i have kind of done that to an extent whereas like on piano which is my preferred composing instrument um you can just go wherever you want to go in whatever kind of tempo and like fluidity or like you know note style staccato etc that you want to um so i'm kind of doing that i do a dumbbell of like orchestration in ex to an extent as well but yeah like a lot of my kind of like my composer personality is more behind the scenes but not for long i'm going to be releasing that side of myself um more completely soon but you can kind of preview it on some of my original compositions on guitar which are on the channel <laughs> That is so cool. If you'll allow me, I'll put at the end of this video, one of the songs that you are playing. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. So, <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. And one of the other ways in which INFJs and music goes together is that there's a conceptual overlay to how they play that song. The song is not just a song. It is a representation of some sort of phenomenon. As, as you can tell from Harry's speech, every time I ask him a question, he will take it and then he'll make it more broad just by nature of talking. <laughs> and so INFJ music writing is in the same vein. It's it's actually very broad in how it's, how it's touching upon things. Mm. And so there's actually a lot of complexity within it if you, if you just kind of go into it, but it's a, it's vaguer and it's hard to fully define and so it's not going to smack you in the face. You actually, you have to pay yeah. attention. Like the introverted yeah. intuition is almost like a quiet murmur or a, a faint whisper. Mm -hmm. And if you pay enough attention, you can see how the vagary makes sense. How there's like that TI 
framework behind it all. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's very moving. Yeah. <laughs> you want to see no, Perry that's... get in touch with his limbic side. <laughs> <Go>. <laughs> his music. Go to the music channel, exactly. Yeah. You get all the TI and CPC and you get the FI side of me on the music channel, yeah. It is true, yeah. <laughs> if anyone wants to tap more into their FI, a great thing is music, so. Yeah, yeah. I highly recommend it. Mm -hmm. What have you learned about yourself through life? I know FE was one of the things that you learned to grow in love. Um, mm. What about other facets in your life in which you've seen yourself individuate? Hmm. Um, I think kind of like maybe a level that kind of like bypasses cognitive functions um, is kind of like maybe individual kind of like shames maybe that we inherit over the course of our life. You know, it could be our culture, it could be certain experiences that happen to us. And then we sort of say like, you know, I don't want to repeat that experience. Or we say, no, this isn't allowed. This part of me is not acceptable, you know, and we're oftentimes not consciously aware of those things. So I think there's many different like um, layers of myself that have developed through kind of coming to terms with sides of myself, again, that I didn't necessarily want to see, or sides of myself that actually weren't necessarily myself, but other people identified as me being me because I was demonstrating to them to other people. For example, maybe like, you know, I didn't have the easiest school life, for example, during the first three years. I mean, the next two years were great, but the first like three years, I guess that's the ages like sorry, in secondary school over here in the UK. So ages, let's say 11 to 14, you know, those are pretty tough years in terms of both home and school for me. So I, kind of, I developed a kind of like a, a more controlling side, for example, you know, I became like maybe more ashamed of size of myself, which were kind of like more passive. So that means I became more deliberately assertive. And that means I developed additional things on top of my personality. You could have you could say that on some level there were skill sets, but on other levels there were kind of pathologies. And those pathologies, you know, you can they can bring about a kind of like a an unnecessarily compulsive behavioral tendency. So, you know, like maybe a little bit of narcissism, for example, makes that enough a kind of like a need to kind of control your environment, control yourself, for example, as well. Kind of like I became very strict, very regimented, very perfectionistic, needing things to be a certain way all the time. And that was all kind of like springing up not necessarily a deep part of who I am intrinsically but we develop additional personality traits in response to trauma for example in response to cultural upbringing and all of these things we may misidentify quote unquote with the truth of, our, of ourselves or of us being authentic when in reality a lot of these things are kind of like pathologies that we kind of demonstrate to other people in, or, in the hopes that they will help us become more blind to the parts of ourselves we're ashamed of so oftentimes, like individual shames are what kind of form our personality. Individual shames are kind of what create these kind of archetypes and stereotypes we attribute to ourselves and then project onto other people in the hopes that they will be convinced by those um, stereotypes. So I think, again, going back into that high level framework, but one part of myself which has developed an individuation, which is completely separate from cognitive functions, other than cognitive functions being used in order to project them in the first place, is kind of like a very very high kind of like self-perfectionistic kind of behavior whereby i always have to attain these standards for example and that means you know very serious all the time very stern very uh wanting to be taken seriously by other people wanting to be respected by other people all of those things that prevented me from kind of loosening up if that makes sense so like loosening up has been a big part of my own individuation just being comfortable sort of like make mistakes maybe make a slip up in the camera maybe be seen 
to be wrong about every, every now and again, you know, God forbid. Um, so that's one area in which maybe I'm continuing to develop as well, a loosening or kind of like taking life a little bit less seriously and allowing myself to be flawed. <laughs> um, that's probably a big part of my own kind of character development, permitting myself to be on some level flawed and human, just like the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, very relatable. <laughs> That's something yeah. I'm still coming to terms with too, because what I'll do with the videos that I make is that I'll edit out my imperfections and I realize that it's yeah. a point of improvement where I should just embrace them fullheartedly. So that is wonderful, fully embracing that authenticity because they're not just bonding with your theory and your model, they're bonding yeah. with Harry as a person, as yeah. a <laughs> guitarist, as a pianist, as a mm. musical lover. Yeah. And that is quite scary as a person who's, you know, a, a little bit more scared of their limbic side, uh, having yeah. all these people wanting to get to know you on this limbic yeah. level. It's like, yeah. great, now I'm forced to individuate way faster than <laughs> just alone. <laughs> exactly. That's so 100% true. I think that's a big reason why I kind of stepped out of the picture a little bit last year as well. I was like, oh, I have to grow and I have to grow quite fast. I can't do that if I'm continuously kind of like putting myself into this like um really vulnerable kind of sphere i needed to kind of take a step back and kind of take some of these energies that i was directing externally and then say okay now i think a bit of that can be diverted internally in order to kind of like become more comfortable long term in front of a spotlight because the channel was kind of growing at a scary rate back then and i know i know this sounds weird from a position of a youtube creator but i actually wanted to slow down the growth of my channel back then because it was like i was okay with it but then i just I and I thought, well, in a year's time, if this channel grows at the rate it was continuing to grow at the time, I would be in a position where I can no longer actually get up in front of the camera and continue doing what other people, you know, are subscribing for me to do without feeling very kind of like overwhelmed on some level. Um, because yeah, that kind of the authentic drive, I need to be myself, but also like the way in which I am naturally kind of receiving people's support as well and people's requests and you know, the interactions it's very kind of intimate on some level and i think some people can kind of create a kind of like a wall and so they can sort of like see their subscribers as like numbers and stuff on some level and like on some level kind of like a perfectly practical and logical kind of dehumanization and desensitization whereas like that's something i've more struggled with and maybe i can do it a little bit better now but i think most of my work especially last year is kind of building up those kind of inner reserves within me and kind of my inner resilience in order to kind of like continue being myself and forming connections with thousands of people around the world um, without feeling kind of overwhelmed by it or without feeling kind of like the burden of responsibility or without feeling like ultimately that I'm not good enough, I need to keep improving, you know, this isn't good enough, people deserve better, people deserve better, why can't I give them better? All of those kind of dialogues that were going around in my head. So last year was actually like, a big step in the journey I was just talking about, loosening up a little bit, relaxing a little bit and allowing myself to be a more natural kind of normal human being, knowing that people will ultimately forgive me for being a human being. <laughs> very much well, yeah. It's wonderful, your desire to want to please and be there truly for your, your audience. You know, I can relate to a lot of the things that you say, Harry, and one of the things as a content creator that I can resonate with is the fear of letting people down and so people yeah. they have these expectations of you they might either mm -hmm. put you on a pedestal or they have certain requests or like they want your help 
and you don't want to let them all down. But as someone who's growing at scale really fast, you're juggling all these balls and eventually one of them is going to have to fall. Yeah. It's like there's a lot of guilt in letting balls fall because yeah. your authority yeah. function, extroverted feeling is like, great, now <laughs> my, my, my desire to be socially polite and socially mm -hmm. amenable <laughs> is not working. I'm letting these balls yeah. fall. It's stressing me out. I'm burnt out. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you're less burnt out now and that you're feeling more recovered, rejuvenated, and back up with the YouTube space. Yeah. It's a more sustainable workload and creative flow now. So it's like I wanted to create something and a kind of a mindset that would carry me through the years rather than just the months. So, yeah, it's much more sustainable kind of consistent content now rather than the kind of like the uncertainty of last year's yeah yeah instead of doing a lot and just burning out um, altogether you're pacing out your burn and so you're not exactly. fully burning out as much or exactly. becoming increasing. yeah exactly yeah. uh-huh got it well that's good then everyone has a more healthy and happy harry around and <laughs> everyone appreciates that because you offer a lot of beauty to the type space <laughs> it's pretty interesting yeah going from a pianist or a guitar player or someone who is relatively recluse a little bit of more solitude to having yeah. a bunch of people going like harry yeah. <laughs> and then it's like whoa that's a lot of social interaction all that yeah way. yeah I was exactly. not expecting that. <laughs> you know, because uh, with the music channel thing, because it got to a comparable size as CPT um, back in the day, like I was kind of okay with that on some level because I was just like playing guitar. I didn't really speak at all. Like, people weren't really seeing my face up close either. It was kind of like the guitar was almost like a little barrier on some level, like a safety kind of wall between me and my audience. And I didn't really respond to comments as much back then either. So there was more kind of distance for whatever reason between myself and the audience. Whereas like now it's like, you know, talking is kind of like quite intimate on some level. I'm much more engaged with my audience because I just genuinely want to be. And all of those different factors go in now to making kind of like the whole talking head thing, the whole kind of like um, promoting my own individual theory, I suppose, like on top of that, like uh, it's much more in the spotlight and a lot more intense. Uh, a form of publicity than um, my music channel was. So I didn't actually expect it to be so different a feeling. So that's, a, and yeah. So it was unexpected to, for it to be that kind of in, that impactful. And so, yeah, I did have to take some time of time to think, well, okay, can I actually do this? And it turned out, yes, I can continue to do this, but I need to kind of do it with a different mindset. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It has definitely been quite the FE growth period, it seems. Yes, it yeah. has. Yeah. yeah, what happens is if you respond in a really deep, thoughtful, intimate way to one comment, you also feel guilty for not doing that for the other person who's just yep. as great. And it's like, great, now that I respond uh, to you, now that I have to respond to you too. And so like, yeah, exactly. this yeah. precedence so that yeah. really hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I don't respond to like, I only like my terms now are kind of like I respond to like comments on a video within the first like few days or something. 
and then it's kind of like, okay, and then I'll respond to an occasional comment every now and again, but it's mostly just going to be on the newer content where I respond to comments. Whereas like when I was at 10,000 subscribers, I was still doing the responding to every comment, one to give people the time of day, F-E-S-E, going mad. And then I realized, okay, this is not sustainable. And even before my little burnout, I was already kind of realizing that and taking measures to kind of tone that kind of stuff down because that was a job. That was already a part-time job responding to comments. So I, I pretty much, I'm okay with kind of like being a bigger channel now and not having the time to kind of respond to every comment in the way that my previous self would have liked to. Um, but I can't deny the fact that I've still got a very natural compulsion to kind of engage in conversations with with everybody, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that is quite the natural compulsion for sure. <laughs> yeah. I feel you there. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna throw something back at you because like your channel is a lot more kind of like socially oriented um than mine you know you're bringing people together actively you're actively kind of like you know communal in that sense and you're actively kind of like you, the nature of your channel in many ways is much more participatory and like audience engaged so i'm kind of like interested like how do you find that side of things yeah that's a good question harry to explain a little bit about my channel i originally saw a niche missing from the mbti community and it was that no one was actually talking to people of those types and so I didn't originally start it to be more social with people. In fact, I'm a very reclusive person. I'm not as sociable as I appear online. And this is a relatively new phenomenon for me as well. Uh, mm. It just I just happened to fall into it. I'm like, all right, I guess this is happening. And yeah. in an urge to not let people down, I, I continued the socialness of mm. the channel. But it's not mm. like I'm so naturally strong with the extroverted feeling. Yeah. I just happened to fall into that and yeah <laughs> it, 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 yeah yeah the purpose for it sometimes is more educational so although there's a lot of social interaction I see it as more of a educational outlet because it's almost like mm -hmm. through our typing sessions that we do those are educational outlets for us to actually get to meet real people. For me, my channel is like that typing session format, but I get to meet people who just will tell me about how their cognition works. So it, it helps mm -hmm. me get at their cognitive mechanism better. And so I, with that rationalization in mind, with my mind, it makes it easier for me to socially interact in the way that I do. But ah, it, that yeah, yeah, that makes everything make sense, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm more fascinated with the understanding of the other person rather than the element yeah. of socially interacting with so many people. It scares I me. I, I feel mm -hmm. overwhelmed. I have to mentally prepare myself before I talk to people. You have to get in the zone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting. And so what did you ask before I threw that at you? Sorry. What I want to ask you was about self-care mm. to prevent burnout. What are some ways that you do that for yourself and taking care of yourself? Oh, first of all, you need time outside of whatever you're obsessed with <laughs> make yourself less obsessed with it as well. Um, so, you know, like don't get too much into the numbers. Don't be checking your numbers and views every day. Don't be checking comments every day. Like learn to kind of like put some kind of protective barrier um, between yourself and other people even if it's just a mental one you can still respond to comments etc but realize that sometimes like not every single comment which has you know constructive criticism will necessarily be that well thought through so i actually put a lot of that originally like don't get me wrong i never really 
I'm grateful in many ways for not having received a lot of negative kind of feedback. But the st some stuff I got was fantastic, and I'm really glad I paid attention to it. But then, like every now and again, you'll get something that isn't quite as like well thought through. But then I'm like, I'll really NITI it. I'll really go into the SI dip. I want to attack it from all the angles because there's a chance I've got a nugget of self development in this comment. You know, there's a chance that the person really like has put together something really interesting that I can kind of use. Like from the position of myself, and every cognitive type is going to be different. But if you feel very growth oriented and you feel like as a creator, you're never going to be good enough, you need to be better. And that means any kind of negative feedback has to be paid attention to because it might actually be like, it might serve as like a very important stepping stone in your own growth. Take that little less seriously. Give it the time of day, but allow yourself to have a healthy amount of cynicism. There's a chance that negative comments are just kind of like spontaneous and off the cuff and they're not necessarily really well thought through. So that's fantastic. Like, for making it more sustainable to pay attention to that kind of stuff in the first place too and then try and loosen up like you want to be better all the time you want to get to that next level but remember kind of like why you're doing it in the first place not i know it's a bit of a like a, a youtube creator kind of um cliche but focus on the enjoyment aspect because before you know it if you're always hitting that next target always wanting to be better you you will almost miraculously kind of forget how to enjoy it. I know that might sound weird, but if you start taking it so seriously that all you're concerned about is progression and getting better and making every video an improvement over the last one, et cetera, getting a certain subscriber milestone by the end of the year, you will unlearn enjoyment. <laughs> and unlearning enjoyment for something that you were doing in the first place because it's fulfilling is a remarkably self-destructive behavioral tendency that happens to a lot of youtube creators so try and hone into that and try and keep that try and keep that because you may already be in a in very fortunate and wonderful position where you're making your living like i am at the moment which is crazy of doing typology something that i love so hold on to the fact that you love it because as soon as it just becomes work as soon as it becomes something that's kind of like demonizing you and kind of um, if that's the correct word but something that you feel is attacking you all the time and something you're obligated to do, then it's you've very much lost touch with the, the version of yourself that stepped onto this road towards a happier kind of life, if that makes sense. Um, so there's so many different things. Like So that's like a, a perspective-based self-care model. And then like a kind of like a practical, like real-life-based self-care model is like, again, it's a cliche, but meditation is so vital. Getting in 10 minutes every day into like a part of your life which is kind of like a good window. Like for me, it's the morning. It just centers you every single time and it puts things in perspective because otherwise you will have things building up. And before you know it, you'll have these crazy kind of like things going on in the back of your head that would, like I said before, turn something happiness producing into something sadness um, producing. And exercise as well, big proponent of that. Keep the blood flowing, keep the serotonin levels up, etc. You can't ignore the neurotransmitter element of happiness and sustainability and resilience. That's super important. Um, have things going on in your life that aren't this as well. Like this can be very addictive, this entire world. Um, you're being hit time and time again with dopamine that wants to get to the next thing and wants to get the next rush and that wants to kind of like I don't know, maybe even kind of like one day meet a creator that you look up to who is a much bigger channel, you know, and you want to climb yourself up there, for example, on a social ladder, maybe. There's lots of different reasons and lots of different kind of motivations for doing this stuff, but a lot of it can be very, very addictive. And you just need to make sure that this drug, if you will, doesn't become an addiction, it becomes something healthy and preferably kind of semi-recreational. 
as well, even if it is work. And have things in your life. Don't forget about your friends outside of your life. <laughs> um, give time to self-care. It might be a day off every week. It might be planning a holiday in a month's time or something. And yeah, okay, of course, like film videos in advance of that week off. You know, you want to keep things going, but just don't immerse yourself in a world where all you're thinking about all the time is a YouTube audience. Think about yourself too. Um, and do whatever makes you happy outside of it. And make sure you always have things that make you happy outside of your YouTube obsession. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You did the TI thing again about like, <laughs> I'm like, Terry, what do you do for self-care? It's like, well, well, self-care as principle, it is yeah. care of yourself and not burning yourself up too quick. And so pace yourself yeah. <laughs> because you want to be able to sustain your audience long-term rather than just doing the short-term game. And so it is very wonderful how you zoom out like that. I can relate. It's the number one kryptonite of the INFJ personality. They um, don't know how to talk about themselves. <laughs> okay, I will. I will do the SI. Don't worry. Um, just because you make a good point. Okay, so um, I do do meditation. I do yoga. I go to the gym uh, twice a week. I try and get at least one meeting with a friend, preferably two, um, kind of social events um, in a week as well. I try and have interests and hobbies outside of this um, sphere and making sure that like, oh, and when I'm going to bed, this is a really good um, thing that I do. I found it useful anyway. Make sure that your brain is occupied with something other than YouTube. Um, make sure your brain's occupied by something outside of like, maybe like in my case, CBT. I'm not thinking about that when I go to bed. You can read a book before bed. You can watch a really great movie before bed. You can have a chat with someone before bed. Just do anything that will make sure that when you go to bed, your thoughts aren't revolving incessantly around the object of your obsession. So just like, I just try and maintain a balanced lifestyle. I, um, I try and operate on a kind of like a more intuitive, believe it or not, kind of basis. Sort of saying, tapping into like, what do I need right now? How do I treat myself? How do I mix things up a little bit? Because YouTube schedule is very routine based. So you want to have a bit of your life. I like to have a bit of my life that is not so routine based. Um, and so I try and mix things up a bit. I try and live a little bit more spontaneously, change my diet up every now and again, even going to cooking a bit more, for example, in order to kind of like treat myself and get myself out of this abstract land of numbers and progression and stuff back into the kind of the everyday, I'm happy to be alive space. And there's lots of different ways to do that. So hopefully that was a more kind of direct answer to the question. <laughs> they were both direct answers, in fact, but one was more about uh, your theory of, of everything, mm. and the takeaways <laughs> from that, and the other was who Harry actually is. <laughs> and, and so it, it's wonderful, yeah. With introverted thinking, it talks a lot in third person. So instead of talking as in like, this is me, it talks more like this is the concept of me interacting with other concepts. And it's like, thank you, Harry. Thank you for the, the concept of <laughs> interacting with the other concepts of life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's why your theory is so great, right? Because you're able to abstractify yourself and abstractify everything in life to turn it into a broad stroke generalized theory of human behavior that is both mm -hmm. fluid and also very descriptive of people's predispositions. Mm -hmm. So you have the best mm -hmm. of both worlds, your TI model building and your, your theoretical framework. It both has very precise principles 
but also allows the flexibility of the human being to move within that system. So you're not you're not boxing people in. You are giving people fluidity. You're giving people space to breathe and be human and to also explore models without feeling defined by the model. Exactly. There's exactly. a yeah, yeah. So the the map is not the territory. So the territory is dependent on the person, but you do, mm -hmm. do provide this amazing map of type. And, mm. and you provide your own unique take on it, twist on it too. Mm -hmm. And we always need people who are re-innovating Carl Jung's works because Carl Jung didn't write his book to make everyone follow it all after. If he were still alive, he'd probably want people to add their thoughts onto his theory because mm -hmm. it's great to kind of almost improve on things as we're going along. And so you're one of the faces of one of the thought leaders of Carl Jung's works. And so it's mm. great uh, to have you adding to that. <laughs> really wonderful thing to, uh, to consider as well. Like, um, yeah, I like to see like the way, how to say it, knowledge, I suppose, progresses. It's just this wonderful kind of handshake between the people of now and the people of the previous. Um, and it's like, you know, we just keep on kind of like standing upon the shoulders of giants in that respect. Like um, Carl Jung was inspired by, you know, Nietzsche and, um, you know, Plato before that, you know, it's just, it's all been this like wonderful collaboration process of sort of like taking what's been passed on and saying, okay, thanks for that. Now I'm going to do something not with it to kind of like to discard a previous thought, it's to honor the previous thought. You're honoring the person of the past who's come before you by building upon the work. And then you are going to pass the beacon, I suppose, onto the person who comes after you. And it's all this wonderful kind of human collaboration process that spans millennia. And that's the way I like to think about these kind of things. You're taking someone's beautiful work and you're just adding more things that accentuate its beauty. And yeah, so exactly. it's almost like you're you're taking a sculpture and you're you're sculpting it a little bit more finely, but you're still respecting that there are beautiful things about the sculpture before yeah. that other people made. You know, Carl Jung, fantastic mm -hmm. contributions, and he is the groundwork of type theory. And yeah, he he is quite the giant. But yeah. it, it's also great to have people adding on to it and making it more beautiful, adding more fruit to the tree. You know, he yeah. starts with a exactly. lot of fruit, but you can still multiply the fruit within the tree. And exactly. so you, you do a great job of that, Harry. And I'm, I'm glad that you can create a more fruitful tree of type, you know, adding on to Kalyan's works. You mentioned philosophers. So are you into philosophy, Harry? Um, I have been more previously. Um, so it's like, I mean, I'm still a fan of Bertrand Russell. I've read quite a bit of his work. Um, what I like about him as well is he's, I mean, for anyone who's like interested in philosophy, kind of uh, Bertrand Russell's History of Modern Philosophy is just a fantastic book because even if you're slightly out of it compared to your previous self like I am right now, it's still good to like tap, tap back into it and then see how philosophy, again, the human handshake has progressed over time as well. So in many ways, I'm more of a kind of, I guess I'd call myself more of a philosopher than a student of philosophy, because I've read a lot of philosophy and then I kind of distilled the essences, integrated it into myself. And then I kind of like found that creating things as I went through life and accumulated new wisdom of my own, I suppose. Um, so I guess like a lot of, so even though I've read lots of philosophy in the past from lots of different philosophers, you know, like Nietzsche, Socrates, Plato, um, etc like um i end up kind of like in many ways taking essences of it and then kind of like carrying that with me and then kind of like 
not necessarily being able to quote from the philosopher anymore, if that makes sense. It's a cognitive process that tends to occur a lot within my mind. I read something and then it kind of like it synthesizes within my brain and then it becomes something that I believe or hold to without while no longer being able to trace it back to its source in the same way. So I used to be a big reader of philosophy, not so much anymore, but I still draw upon lots of different philosophers in what I bring to the table, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 10,000% relate to that. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's actually very innate to how I operate as well. Like I see myself as the philosopher instead of the philosophy consumer. Yeah. I feel like I make the philosophy. Things might inspire it, but it gets to the point where it's not even based on that original thing at all anymore, and it's untraceable. Oh, it's it's awesome. the thing exactly. Yeah, it just keeps on merging with all of the data you get from life and your own experiences and your own opinions and stuff, and then it becomes something entirely new and no longer kind of like um, as discrete a piece of information as it once like was, or like it's no longer an additional component because all of the components have just been completely atomized, I suppose. And so now it's just, as you say, it's kind of untraceable. <laughs> it is, yeah, yeah. And I is very untraceable because it operates yeah. in a fake space. And yeah. so it's hard to know exactly where the thing came from because it's like you almost see that medium and you bring it into your own NITI to the point where it's no longer the thing you are observing anymore anyways. So quoting mm. it would not mean anything anyways because yeah. the quote has nothing to do with your thought now. Yeah. People exactly. are like... Yeah, yeah. So it's a whole new animal of its own. And so that kind of brings its comparison to introverted sensing, whereas with SI, it does have a traceable root and it's often very something very specific and concrete. And you, yeah. you can trace things back to the SI. It might be the the relation might be a little bit obscure, but you can always trace it back to the SI with SI. Mm, exactly. Like I even find within like any convergent types, you know, like um ENFPs, ESFJs, and even kind of like INFPs and INTPs as well, there's still that kind of that tracing back that tends to occur. They're still like, sure, they're drawing upon lots of different things and like oftentimes they'll be attempting to synthesize them all together, but they're still obviously that and they're still rendering them separate. They're obviously all these different modules and components that they're jungling together into this different kind of like jigsaw piece in many ways. Um, and yeah, so it's like, SI dominance, like they'll um, on the converse, like they'll definitely have their own original thoughts and perspectives. But like, um, generally speaking, they do kind of retain the source in many ways. They'll be the kind of the YouTube channels, the philosophy YouTube channels. A lot of them seem to be ISFJs, which is interesting. They'll sort of say like, oh yeah, this person said that. And then this person said that. And then I think that's interesting because I personally think that, but it also doesn't entirely contradict that thing, which still is comes from that person. And that other thing comes from that person. And it's all these different individual kind of like, pieces that all maintain their own kind of integrity which is very interesting and almost alien way of operating to me <laughs> yeah yeah whereas oftentimes introverted intuition and i it is very cohesive and so it, it's not about taking like different blocks from different places because that's not as cohesive as a theory than actually almost generating your theory in your own mind space so you, you don't need to reference anything because it's created from you it might be a, uh, like, yeah. it's almost like NI types, especially paired with TI, like for the INFJ in a convergent way, they actually have their own understanding of things because they don't take source material seriously. So they're like, uh, that philosopher, great. That's like a <laughs> <laughs> yeah. source material is, is just another point, but it's not like, it's not 
it's not pivotal to the theory that the INFJ makes. Whereas yeah. like, for SI types, like the stepping stones to their theories are actually very tied into the source material and they have exactly. to relate it back to that quote or they have to relate it back to that other person's thought. Mm -hmm. um, whereas the NI type, they don't do that naturally and they don't, their brain just doesn't work that way. And if they do mm -hmm. quote, it's typically just because they don't want to rip the other person off. So they're like, okay, that, that comes from their edge. It's just out of exactly. nicety, not out of... Yeah, exactly. yeah it's like when you reference Taoism, it's not because you okay. see it as a Taoist concept. You just are like, I don't want to rip Taoists off, and you know that yeah, they exactly. about it. And so, yeah. as the NI type, you might think about the concept of order and chaos, mm -hmm. but you're thinking about it completely in your own way. It's yeah. like I don't care how the Taoists approach this. I don't care how those people approached it. Like now that I have their viewpoint. May I may not or may or may not care, but yeah. it's not it's not the foundation to how I make up my beliefs. Exactly. Yeah, like knowledge and such things are kind of transmitted more by like osmosis um in the NITI kind of sphere. So like I I might read into it for even for a prolonged period, but then like I'll absorb it into myself and then I'll kind of be atomized, completely de-assimilated and reassimilated into something well relatively new um and mine. And then as you say, Joyce, it doesn't really make sense from that point to trace it back anyway, because it wouldn't be a faithful, like it's not a reproduction, full stop. It's a composition. Um, so because it's not like a reproduction of something, it'll kind of like be inauthentic to sell it as a reproduction of something. And like even though like he I could even apply that to Carl Jung like himself, like because that is by far the greatest single traceable source of the theory that I work with. And in many ways, I'm kind of almost incessantly kind of faithful to his intentions of individuation, integration of the shadow, for example. And I want to kind of like use the kind of the functions he came up with in order to steer his own agenda in that kind of way. But at the same time, like it's no argument that kind of my cognitive definitions of certain things like extrovert feeling, for example, might differ slightly to his. And I feel like I've built upon his, for example, and he doesn't necessarily explicitly state certain things that I feel like he implicitly stated and I want to bring into the theory as well so even when it comes to kind of like an obvious source material of cbt i'm still kind of blending in kind of like neuroscience element the way that the hemispheres interact with each other in the brain as well and like a lot of other like modern psychological kind of like concepts within cognitive psychology for example i blend that in too and you know as you say joyce is sort of taking all of those things meshing them all around kind of like stewing them together shaking them up de-assimilating them re-assimilating them and only have something new within an iti <laughs> yeah yeah and so the NI originality comes from, it's not like NE going through a bunch of like a plethora of many, many ideas in a very chaotic way, but it's more of a, it takes a while for everything to shake up and sit. But when it does sit, it's like a completely original take on a subject yeah. without needing to reference what has been done before because your own way of synthesizing it creates a whole new beast. Yeah. And it's it's a it, it gives a more piercing, a more clear, a more perceptive look into the actual extroverted sensing reality around you. So this is a theory that encapsulates yeah. the the SE. So if we bring this all down, this is the core concept in a vague way about um, the underlying essence of the phenomenological experience of being human or the cognitive exactly. experience. I love that as well like I really love that because a lot of like the ways I sell SE to people because oftentimes you have to sell it to people is um 
saying like SE is kind of like it's really nuanced and rich and like the fidelity of SE experience is pure like you're seeing what truly is and you're seeing all of the different colors and all of the vibrancies and all the ways they interact with each other within this focused portion of external reality and sort of like if you're seeing SE paired with FE as you would within CPT like an INFJ sees all of this complicated human information with so many nuances and every individual is completely and utterly different from another individual and it's sort of like well how can I extrapolate upon that in order to create a framework that accounts for all of this different individual nuance and that's ultimately what's been going on in my headspace and as you say sort of like the NITI is faithful to the SEFE fidelity. Yeah it wants to it wants to take the FESE information and the judgments to arrive at this deeper understanding. So it's almost like taking it and then taking it from the high fidelity to a vague abstractory and trying to <laughs> like, it, it's just automatically, you automatically do it without really meaning to. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's really nice talking with you, Harry. <laughs> you, Chat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have so much to offer to the type space, and you already brought so much amazingness, especially with your newest edition of your book, your your second edition of the, yeah. the CPT book. And so, go check that out. It's going to be linked in the description below. And so, Harry, I highly, highly, highly appreciate your desire to stay true to Carl Jung's work, yet also refining it and having your own NI way of interpreting it and having your own vision, your own way of seeing it that you're able to bestow onto other people. And so that people will still get the amazing parts out of Carl Jung's works. You're great at distilling it to the mainstream nowadays. Mm, and also adding your own hairy flavoring to it and your own theory flavoring to it as well. And that's well needed. And so your approach is very Jungian and mm. that is really great. So you do this perfect integration between personality theory and Jungian philosophies mm. and you combine them into your, your hairy methodology. And and so that offers a lot of good takes and you're going to help people a lot with, you know, the huge INFJ mistyping conundrum with the whole world. Yeah. <laughs> <It works>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You go into a classroom that is learning about type. They give everyone like the 16 personalities and then they'll half the class is doing the presentation. <laughs> it's like, oh no, this is horrible. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> it does yeah. yeah it's like it's so inaccurate i i yeah, <laughs> yeah so <laughs> it's good that your material is able to get to the heart of mistyping in a lot of ways and you're able to help people find their best fit type in a way where they get to examine their cognitive predispositions more honestly and thoughtfully with yeah. your thought-provoking material that's out there and in a lot of high definition too. So mm -hmm. your videos are in very high fidelity SE because it's very HD. They're mm -hmm. phenomenal mm -hmm. down to the editing and down to mm -hmm. the the capturing. It's very, mm -hmm. it's very pretty. <laughs> and so you're hitting that. Um, mm -hmm. It's great to have you, FE, genuinely wanting to connect with your audience because UTI love the theoretical components and the 
framework uh, like theory. Yeah. And so you, you, you basically get to use your cognitive functions in a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. That is the dream, yeah. <laughs> so it's great to to bask in your theoretical brilliance for a moment. Mm, thank you so much. It's been really great to talk. To you. Uh, yeah, thanks for all the kind words. That's really yeah, lifting me up. <laughs> all of those things help me like keep going and keep the momentum going behind me as well. As long as I can keep doing good, and I feel like what I'm putting out is you know a force for good and growth and happiness, then I'm happy and able to keep going. So I appreciate it. It is, yeah. You're really able to strip away behaviors and the products of the functions into their purest distillation. So mm -hmm. you, you really get to the thing itself rather than the manifestation of the thing. So yeah. yeah. That that clean slicing, that surgical knifing of of, of mm -hmm. separating those two things, it creates a community that's more critical thinking and yeah. more into examining the roots of their behavior rather than debating about just behavior itself. So yeah. your process is about an inquiry of depth and an inquiry of going layers deeper that mm. the world can really benefit from. And so, yeah. yeah. So too, and just like, yeah, as you say, like the critical thinking is just a huge emphasis of the channel. Like the more, you know, we can all collectively teach people new to typology to think critically about it with an open mind that isn't too binary either. Um, I think the more typology could actually enter a more healthy kind of mainstream um, and not just kind of like continue to kind of sit at um, a kind of like a more pop psychology um, level. So yeah, I'm feeling optimistic about the future and I appreciate all the support from yourself, from everyone as well. And I'm looking forward to what this year holds. <laughs> Yeah, when you raise the accuracy of something, you also raise the legitimacy of it as well. So I'm glad that you're at the forefront of that movement. And so I appreciate you, Harry. You are great. You're splendid. You're fabulous. And thank you, viewers, for watching. I'll see you all in the next episode. Take care.
Thank you.